0: And I looked through a gap in the hills and all I could see was the bloody enemy and all they looked like were ants. There were swarms of them, literally swarms and swarms. And I knew then we were in trouble.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. 70 years ago today a desperate battle was being fought by the outnumbered men of the Gloucestershire Regiment who were surrounded by more than 10,000 Chinese troops at the Battle of the Imjin River in Korea. The Korean War was amongst the most destructive conflicts of the modern era and one of the few times when the Cold War turned hot. Tommy Clough is one of the last surviving of the Battle of the Imjin River and was just 19 when the Gloucestershire Regiment were cut off from their brigade in April 1951. Outnumbered 10 to 1 and surrounded, they dug in on a hilltop for three days, repelling attack after attack until their ammunition ran out. We hear in detail the desperate fighting to hold off the Chinese army as food, water and ammunition ran out. Inevitably, the Gloucesters were forced to surrender and Tommy's story continues with the hardship and privation of the 500-mile march to their prisoner-of-war camp. Following an escape attempt, Tommy is held and handcuffed for six weeks in solitary confinement, including a lengthy period in a small cage. It is an incredible story of fortitude and resilience under the most extreme circumstances, and I'm so humbled and and honoured to be able to share this story with you. I'd like to thank History of War magazine for putting me in contact with the soldiers of the Gloucestershire Museum and subsequently Tommy. Now, I do need help to continue to track down these unknown stories of the Cold War and ensure they're preserved before they are lost. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute a small amount per month to help keep us on the air, although larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to ColdWarConversations.com/donate. I'm delighted and honoured to welcome Tommy Clough to our Cold War conversation.
0: I joined the army on the 8th of May. 1945, which was VE Day. Everybody was going home, and I was going down to London, to Woolwich, my depot, Royal Artillery. And I was only 14, and I was 8 years old when the war started. And I followed the war, obviously, because my dad went... To France, came back through Dunkirk and then went out to the Far East and he was taken prisoner by the Japanese at Singapore so anyway I was with my sister and my mother in Blackpool where I was born and on the 8th of May well prior to the 8th of May A friend of mine in school, he wanted to join the RAF, and I always wanted to join the Navy. Anyway, he came into school one day and said, let's join the Army. I said, I don't want to join the Army. He said, no, I don't really, but it's the only service that's taking boys. So anyway, I joined. I twisted my mother's arm. And she signed for me to, to join. So that was the 8th of May. World War II finished completely in August 45. My dad came home and said he was a different man to what he was when he went away. But he said to me, right, Tommy, I'm going to get you out. And I said, why? He said, well, you joined the Army against my wishes. He said, I wasn't able to sign um, for you to join. You twisted your mother's arm and joined. So I said, look, Dad, I don't mind. I like the Army. I joined it for adventure and travel. And believe you me, Ian, I got more than my fair share. But anyway, when I got into man service, almost straight away, I got a posting order to go to Worcester, where my battery was folding up, because I joined the Royal Artillery. And the battery I was joining was the 170th Independent Motor Battery. And I was with um, a medium regiment at the time, um, firing the 5.5s, which were quite a heavy gun, and I was going to a mortar battery, and as you know, a mortar is a light uh, piece of armor, and um, anyway, I was a, what they call a technical assistant, Royal Artillery, sounds very posh, but it's nothing really. But it was I wasn't actually on the guns. I was up um, the sharp end uh, with the infantry, and we were performing target observation. We had a captain, uh, Captain Wisby, who was a regular soldier, and he'd been called back for the Korean War, and in fact. He was awarded a military cross in Italy during World War II. Anyway, I went to Worcester and um, went on leave in Blackpool, embarkation leave, and then left Southampton in uh, September, I think it was, on the HMS Halladale. Got to uh, Korea uh, after going seeing the sights in Colombo, Singapore, Hong Kong, you name it, you know. It was like going on a cruise. And I was thoroughly enjoying myself. And we were a mixture in my battery of regulars, of which I was one regular reservists who were called back for the Korean War, and national servicemen who were volunteers. Because if you were a national serviceman, to go to Korea, you had to volunteer. So we landed in Korea the end of November. It took us five weeks, anyway, to get there. When we go offshore, we were about a mile out. And we were all saying, what's that smell? And the crew said, that's Korea. And we said, well, why does it smell like that? And they said, because they use human waste. I don't know, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, the, on the fields as, um manure, you know, fertilizer. So we thought, what the hell are we going into? Anyway. We got into Pusan and we were met by an American band, and it was great, you know, the welcome we had. It was a military band playing jazz music. Anyway, we went ashore, and it's typical of the British Army, our trucks were on another boat because we went on troop ships and they weren't equipped to carry equipment. So we set off by train. We set off north, going north, because by then, the Pusan perimeter had broken out and the carter had landed at Incheon. He'd landed at Marines at Incheon and the North Koreans were being driven back right up, to the North Korea up to the Yalu. So we were going up, we went up as far as Pam and John area. And then our guns, our mortars followed us. And we were with 29th Brigade. And 29th Brigade had three battalions. The Royal Northumberland Fusiliers. The Royal Ulster Rifles and the Gloucesters. And we had three troops of mortars, A, B, and C. And I was in C, and we drew the short straw, and we got the Gloucesters. So the other two got the Ulsters and the Royal Northumberlands. But we were with a good battalion, and we were okay. And we saw quite a few actions over the winter of 50,
1: 51. Tommy, when you were travelling through Korea, what were you seeing around you?
0: Yeah, well, we saw a lot of um, guerrilla action because the North Koreans were leaving guerrillas behind to cause trouble. Um, but that was the glosses mainly. We didn't do a lot of firing, mortars until the Gloucesters took a hill called 327, and that was south of Seoul on the way up, and the Gloucesters took this hill, and of course we were supporting them with mortars, and that was when I first saw my real dose of action as an OP observer, because when we were going up the hill, I had, because as you know, with the artillery, well, with anybody in the British Army, wireless communication is vital. And I had strapped to my back two heavy batteries to maintain our wireless communication. And when we got halfway up the hill, somebody shouted, incoming. And we heard a shell coming, and everybody dived down except me. I couldn't because I would have broken my back. And I had these batteries on my back, so I just lowered myself. And as I did, there was another OP about a hundred yards in front of us from a regiment called the 45th field a Royal artillery 25 pounder regiment who were brilliant really brilliant they're really good but the shell landed right in the middle of the OP and I saw them killed or at least I thought they were all killed I they seemed to rise up in slow motion, you know, and we walked over the area after the medics had cleared it and there was skin and bone everywhere, but I later found out amongst five of them, only one was killed, a young man called Gunnar Baldock. but the others were injured and were evacuated.
1: Tommy, I understand at one point you had to take a prisoner to a aid post or a hospital.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, that was Hill 327. Before the losses attacked it, there was um, a black unit next to us, an infantry. And before we attacked one night... There was moaning from the middle, from no man's land. Now, we, we weren't sure whether it was um, the Chinese um, giving us a come on. But anyway, the would sent a patrol out, and they came back with a wounded prisoner. And they saw to him that we had to take him back to an aid post. And me and my driver, we were the only people there with transport. We had a Jeep. So they said, what are you taking back? So our officer said, yes, okay, you take him back. So there was me and the driver in a Jeep with the prisoner. And we, it was a dead of night. We had about a mile to go. Anyway, my driver stopped. And he said to me, right, Tommy, kick him out of the jeep and shoot him. And I said, why? He said, I'm not going all that way back this time of night with Chinese patrols around. He said, we can always say he tried to escape. And I said, no, we can't do that. We've got to take him back to the aid post. Anyway, we did, and um, we found out afterwards he was able to give our intelligence people quite a lot of information. So it's just as well, we didn't shoot him. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: So anyway, we eventually got up to the Yalu in North Korea. after seeing a few other smaller battles. And we were almost at the Yellow River, which is the border, the river border between North Korea and South China. And we were almost there. The Americans were in jubilation. They thought the war was gonna be over. But then the Chinese came in, and I prayed then it was bug out time. The Americans retreated, and we had to go with them, of course, because by then, and well, anyway, before we landed in South Korea, the United Nations had joined in the battle. And, um, but everybody thought the war was going to be over, but it wasn't, obviously. It lasted another two and a half years. But anyway, the, re- the Americans retreated down south again. Seoul fell, um, that's the South Korean capital, fell again to the North Koreans or the Chinese. And then we slowly began to begin advancing north again. That is the United Nations. And we ended up uh, roughly along the 38th parallel, 30 miles north of Seoul, with a brigade covering what should have been um, a divisional front, suitable for a division, not a brigade. But we were thinking, and the thinking then, of course, was we were heading north. We were advancing.
1: Did you see many refugees on your advance north?
0: Yes, and that was one of the worst things. The refugees were in a terrible state, Um, especially the children. I mean, it was a bitter winter. The winter was bitterly cold. But they were shoeless, almost no, no warm... Clothing at all, no food, and they were just drifting backwards and forwards with the battles. And they were in a terrible state. And that's always the case, obviously, with most battles in whatever world you go to. The civilians are always the worst off. I mean, we were fighting a battle... And we were getting three meals a day. We were well fed, but they weren't. And we used to kind of, as much as we could, we used to share our food with them. But it was difficult because we were fighting a war, and the Americans were trying to keep the roads clear so that we could advance. And they they were jam packed with refugees. But of course, the Chinese use the Indian refugees to infiltrate um, our lines. They dressed in civilian clothes and came through with the refugees. And suddenly we'd have, in the middle of the refugees, we'd have Chinamen shooting at us, you know. So it was difficult, but it was very, very bad refugee style. We saw babies abandoned, but the babies were already dead because of the cold. So there was no point in carrying a dead baby. So they abandoned them, obviously. But I don't think any of them abandoned a living child. I don't think they would do it. We also saw Atrocities being committed, which we reported by the it was by the the North Koreans and the South Koreans. The North Koreans were just killing everybody who, who they thought wasn't a communist, and the South Koreans were doing the opposite. They were putting people on trial who they thought were communist sympathisers. And there wasn't much of a trial, really. They were just assassinating them, you know. So I think that first year of the war was pretty bad. Very bad. Conditions were bad. The weather was bad. Um, It was pretty grim all round, And we weren't used to withdrawing quite easily. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't say too much about it, but the Americans did, because they weren't sure when the Chinese came in. They weren't sure that they were starting World War Three. You see, when the Chinese came in, because MacArthur wanted to go into China uh, to attack. The air bases where their aircraft were coming from, because the aircraft were Russians, MiGs, and um, we occasionally saw a strange um, looking Chinaman in a Russian uniform, but that is another story.
1: So you think, like, Soviet advisors or something like that? That
0: That's right, yes, yeah. I mean, we, we saw most of that after we were taken prisoner.
1: Can you take me back to the Imjin River and tell me what was going on at the time?
0: We were static for about three weeks and we didn't know where the enemy was. We sent patrols over the river, across the Imjin, and I went with a couple of patrols, and we didn't see anybody. No enemy, no trace of the enemy. We didn't know where the hell they were, because we were trying to find out where they were, what their intentions were, and what their strengths were. Anyway, on April the 22nd, the grocers put a patrol down the river, because they half expected something to happen, and it did. The Chinese started to cross, and the patrol, it was a 10-man patrol with um, a a second Louis, a second lieutenant in charge, and they sorted the Chinese out, but eventually they ran out of ammunition, and we were firing as well with our mortars, but they had to pull back. But meantime the Chinese had got across. My OP officer who was called a fool in those days. F double O. He should have put an L on the end. <laughs> but anyway, um when the Chinese were coming in on the twenty second, the twenty third, um we were in position on Castle Hill on the 22nd, and um, I said to my CEO, I said, Are there many of them? So he handed me his binoculars, and I looked through a gap in the hills, and all I could see was the bloody enemy, and all they looked like were ants. There were swarms of them, literally swarms and swarms, and I knew then we were in trouble, and when we got back to the mortars, the mortars can't see their targets, you see, they're behind hills, one of the lads said to me, are there many of them, and I, I couldn't bring myself to say, yeah, a couple of thousand, I said, yeah, there are quite a few. And that was one of the first, as a minor, understatement of the year, because once we were on 235, Brigadier Brody, our brigade commander, was asked by the Americans, uh, what are things like on your sector, Brigadier? And he should have said, we're up shit creek without the puddle." But he said, things are a bit sticky. And that was the the second understatement of the year. (laughs) Because we were literally up shit street without a puddle. And I heard later, we didn't know it at the time, but we heard that the Chinese at one point were five miles behind us. So there was no chance we were gonna fight our way out the five miles. Everybody withdrew, um tactical withdrawal. We didn't exactly retreat, we withdrew tactily, <laughs> as the saying goes, and Colonel Carl decided to gather all his companies in onto hill two three five. The hills were given numbers according to their height in meters. And we were on two three five next to another feature was was called Kamak Sam, which is higher than ours and the Chinese had occupied. Anyway, we got into position We took our mortar barrels with us in case they fell into Chinese hands. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favourite podcast and I look forward to it every week.
1: To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to com slash donate to find out more.
0: But we couldn't manage anything else, we could only manage the barrels because normally they're towed by truck. So we left our trucks, um, Battalion HQ pulled out, and we followed them up the hill and took up positions. In the meantime, The rest of the brigade were pulling back um, the Northumberlands, the Ulster Rifles, and the Belgian Battalion. They pulled back a great loss, mind you, and they have managed to get out. But we were stuck on Hill 235, and eventually we became surrounding.
1: Tommy, when when you saw that number of Chinese attacking you, did you think that was going to be the end for you? Or, or did you believe that you were going to be able to fight off that number?
0: Well, I thought we could, tell you the truth. We were fully confident at first. Um, and I said to my mate in the trench, I said, this will be something to tell the... The others in the pub, but we get back. I had no doubt that we would get out because they were, the Americans were sending um, a, a regimental combat team, hopefully to relieve us. But that fell through and they couldn't make it. But um, we had every confidence at first, but of course, Our confidence began to wane when we started to run out of ammunition and water. We had a little of both and we had a little food, but we weren't too worried about food. It was water and ammunition that we wanted. Water for the wounded and, of course, us, because we were as dry as anything, you know, there was no stream on the on the hill we were on, the streams were in the valleys. So, when we started throwing rocks at them, the Chinese knew that the rocks weren't grenades and weren't exploding. In the meantime, Farah the adjutant, called for an airstrike. Well, we were in the trench, obviously, The F-80s, I think they were Sabre jets, they came in from behind us and they dropped the napalm at the back of us. And I really thought it was going to be another case of friendly fire, which wasn't very friendly. I call it blue on blue. Anyway, the napalm came over our heads and the momentum of the aircraft took the napalm into the Chinese. Spot on, absolutely spot on, because Farah Hawley had thrown a smoke grenade into the Chinese positions, so they were well marked. And we could hear the screams of the Chinese, and we could smell the napalm burning flesh. Um. In a way, it was like roast pork, but it wasn't very appetizing. And I did really, at that point, pity the Chinese. It was a horrible way to die. But there again, napalm was a horrible weapon. And it was used in the Vietnam War, and I think it was banned in the end. But uh, eventually, we began to realize there was no way we were going to get out of this alive, you know.
1: I do find it incredible that the bravery and the, the resolution of you and the and the men around you, that even with the ammunition running out or have run out, you're actually throwing rocks at the Chinese to try and keep them off.
0: In the end, in the very end, because we had nothing else. And the, the Chinese assumed that the rocks were grenades at first, but then realised the rocks weren't exploding. So they knew, as well as we did, that we were definitely up Ship Street without a paddle.
1: Were you issued with a, a rifle, and were you firing directly at the Chinese at this point?
0: Oh yes, yeah, that's all we had. We didn't have any, no, auto- well, we hadn't spend, and we had a few Brens, and we had the Vickers. The Vickers were very good, but the Chinese had all automatic weapons. They had Sten guns, they had Bren guns, they had weapons left over from World War II, and um, their, only, their only drawback was ammunition because he had a mixture of guns and everything, whereas we had mainly CO3, the Enfields, and the Vickers and the Brems used the same ammunition. The stems were 9mm, but we didn't have made stems. They were useless anyway.
1: So presumably this was the first time that you were actually aiming a weapon and aiming to kill another person at this point.
0: Well, I suppose it was being artillery, you know. And we let the infantry do the fighting.
1: Doing my research for this episode, Tommy, I discovered that you had a rather unusual method for uh, keeping the Vickers machine guns cool.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'd seen it in many a wartime film, you know. And they passed the bucket around for us to pee in for the vicars to cool them. But we couldn't. We we hadn't had any water for days. So it was very difficult. But they managed managed to dip. And it helped to cool the vicars for a little while. And uh, one of the things that happened was, because we were covering... The MSR, the main supply route for the Chinese. And I forget when it was exactly, but one afternoon, it was quite sunny and spring like, we saw to our amazement um, a gang of Chinese coming down the road on bicycles. And the vicars couldn't believe it. And they opened up, of course. And the Chinese were going along as if they were on a Sunday afternoon outing, you know. And suddenly the Vickers opened up on them. And they were all over the road with bikes and, and got those So that that bucked us up a bit. that um, the poor Chinese didn't know what had happened.
1: <laughs> Tommy, my father served in a Vickers machine gun battalion in World War Two, so I'm quite familiar with the uh, Vickers machine gun.
0: Your father was with Vickers?
1: Yes, he served in the Middlesex Regiment.
0: Oh, the Middlesex were in Korea with the 27 Brigade.
1: Yes, he was almost called up for Korea. He was on something called the Z Reserve, um, but luckily he never made it out there.
0: Well, he was very lucky then, because the Middlesex got a hammering,
1: Yes, you're right. He was uh, very lucky, and indeed, I might not be here if he'd if he'd gone out there. Tommy, can you tell me what happened to the wounded?
0: Well, the um, the medical officer and the padre offered when the order came, when Calm got the order to evacuate, they offered to stay behind with the wounded. And a few medical orderlies did the same. We did at least have a slim chance of getting out, but they knew for certain they would be captured. So they stayed behind with the wounded. And a friend of mine, um, Sam Mercer, he was the inspiration, really, for Andrew Salmon's book to the last round, and Sam, um, he lost an eye in the battle um, where his platoon commander got the VC, and then after being taken prisoner, he was shot in the leg by a wounded Chinaman, and um, he was taken prisoner, of course. Like all of us. But he was a very brave man, was Sam. And um, the other man I admire greatly was a man called Lofty Large. You may have heard of him. He was badly wounded in the arm. And all the time in the camp, he couldn't use, I forget which arm it was, his left or right arm. And the hand was just a claw, you know, he couldn't use it. And they were they were repatriated six months earlier than us on what was called Little Switch uh, through the peace talks. And when they got home, Sam Mercer had to have his leg amputated, which he did, and he had a, a prosthetic put in. But he left the army. And he lived until about a fortnight ago, and he died of pneumonia, although he was admitted with pneumonia and the virus. but Lofty, he got back, and they said, we're going to take your leg off, or your arm off. And he said, no, you're not, I'm keeping it. And they said, well, you'll never use it again. And he... Believe it or not, he got back up to peak fitness and joined the SAS. And Lofty Lodge was like his name. He was lofty and it was as broad as this armchair I'm sitting in. And he was a legend in the SAS. And he died probably about 12 years ago of leukemia which was a great pity. He was a lovely fellow, lived in Hereford. And I went to his funeral. But it was strange because there was only a couple of us there, extra and the, the the chapel was packed with SAF. And not one of them had a medal on. Because we wear medals, obviously, to military funerals but not the SAS. But Lofty was a legend. He really was.
1: Tommy, I really appreciate you sharing the stories of those brave men. I think it just really illustrates the the fortitude and bravery of those that served. Can you share with me the circumstances of your capture?
0: But what happened was... When we were getting out or trying to get out, me and another man, we tried to catch up with our fool, our officer, because we thought the best way would be to follow him because he knew the area better than we did, although I knew the area fairly well. And we were going up this small hill, and a Chinaman stood up in front of me, and i 10 yards or so, and by the side of him was a Bren gunner. Well, it was a gunner with a light machine gun. It looked like a Bren. It was all happening in in seconds, you know, and I brought my rifle up and fired, and the the Chinaman standing up dropped to the ground, and the Bren gunner, whatever, disappeared, so, they were obviously going to fire at us. So it was him or me, you know? And we, we skirted round him. It was funny because when I shot the gentleman, a voice came from my left, which shouted, don't shoot. Now, I don't know to this day, whether it was an English voice, and then it was a Chinaman, because we did hear later that the Chinese had picked up a bit of English, and when they used to do night patrols, they would come in, when they were discovered, they shout in English, don't shoot, hoping that our fellows would think they were English patrol coming back, you know. But anyway... I never did find out whether it was an English voice or a Chinese. But anyway, we carried on, and it couldn't have been more than 20 minutes, half an hour at the most. Suddenly, they started to come down either side, because we were in a valley, and a voice behind one of the officers, and I've got a feeling it could have been Farrah Hockley, the adjutant, it was definitely English, shouted, all right, lads, put your, put your rifles down. I mean, I'd already, when I shot the Chinaman and I heard that voice, I knew we weren't fighting our way out. I only had four rounds left in my rifle anyway, so I knew it was useless. I tried to destroy my rifle. And all I could destroy was the bolt uh, and the sight slightly, you know. Anyway, I threw it down. And this voice said, right, lads, that's it. Put your weapons down. Because we were definitely outnumbered. And they were fully armed, of course. So they lined us up. And in some cases, they shook hands. But anyway, they took everything off us. And I hid my watch. I had a watch which I was very proud of. I'd won it playing cards. And it was a date watch, which was unusual for 1950. But I hid it, and I won't tell you where, but the Chinese didn't get it. There was a body on the ground covered with a ground sheet, And our Sergeant Major said to the Chinese, he beckoned for this body to be uncovered, and it was a Chinaman that I'd shot. And I'd shot him, and I'm not boasting, but I'd shot him right through the forehead, right between the eyes, and he was as dead as a doornail. And my Sergeant Major, and bless him, was patting me on the back and saying, that was a good shot, Cloppy. And I said, no, it wasn't bloody me, because all these China were stood around. But they didn't seem bothered. It didn't seem to bother them at all that one of their number had been shot by a British, British soldier, you know. Because I think most of their, their troops were cannon fodder they were probably nationalist troops captured during the Civil War in China and made to fight for the uh, communists. And the heart was in it. But they, I mean, when they attacked, they were either very brave or drugged or being driven from the back. And I think it was a mixture of all three because they came headlong at us, you know. And we could just pick them off. We were just killing them. But we had the firepower, but they had the manpower. And they certainly had the manpower. There were literally, literally thousands of them. and We were greatly outnumbered. We could never have fought our way back.
1: Can you tell me how you got to the prisoner of war camp?
0: Well, we we um, we set off almost immediately. Um, the Chinese were anxious to get us out of the front line because the best time I learnt later to escape is while you're in the front line because... You won't get another chance of being close to your own lines. I didn't know this till later. Anyway, um, they started taking us north straight away. We didn't march. We were in no fit condition to march. We just endured a three-day battle, intense three-day battle, without food or water or very little of either. And so we were knackered, very little sleep because most of their attacks came in at night when we couldn't see them, you know. So anyway, we ambled along and it took us five weeks to get to the camp. And when we got to the camp, we just about ambled in. You know, we didn't march in. We ambled in and we met the Americans who'd been caught, and a few Brits who'd been caught during the winter, and they were in a terrible state. They were in a worse state than we were, really. And they were being badly treated by the North Koreans and the Chinese. So, anyway, they cheered up a bit when we got, and we did help them as much as we could. But that first year was terrible.
1: I find it really difficult to imagine the conditions, Tommy, but can you tell me how you were treated on the march?
0: Well, they weren't too bad initially. Because like I say, they were fighting troops and they more or less more or less sympathised with us, you know. Not entirely. There were a few bad ones, especially the young ones, who had to show off, you know. But they weren't too bad, really, until we got probably 24 hours or 48 hours into being captured. And then they were indifferent Indifferent to the way we were. I mean, we had quite a lot of wounded, but there was no medical attention or very little. I mean, their own troops were badly off, really. So I don't suppose we could grumble, but even so, there wasn't even the, the basic first aid, you know. So we had to manage the best we could. And our medical officer didn't have anything anyway. Um, So it was a bit rough, that first um, 500 miles anyway, until we got to the camp and then we started to sort ourselves out, including the Americans, who were very glad to see us, really.
1: Tommy, can you describe to me what the camp was like?
0: Well, it was, it was a village that had been taken over by the um, the Chinese. There was no barbed wire. Uh, there weren't the camps we imagined them to be like there were in Europe during World War Two. There was no barbed wire, but there was men. They had manpower. And these who be the men who weren't fit enough to be in the front line so they were prison guards. And literally, they could put a ring around the camp of a man every few yards. They didn't need barbed wire. And that's how we got caught. When we were taken prisoner and we got to the camp, they tried the brainwashers. They tried to convert us to communism, and we could see through it, and we, we, we didn't, you know, we couldn't take it. So we went along with it to a certain extent, but nobody got fed up with it. But there were probably about 10 or 12, mainly amongst the Americans, who went along with it and got extra rice, and God knows what. And in fact, some got mail from home because of it. The majority of us would have nothing to do with it. So we stuck to our guns, you know. And it wasn't until we were captured, after six months, the Chinese said, "Right, you can write a letter home. So we all decided, the majority of us decided to write our first letter because we knew there would be no exchange of prisoners' names because the Chinese communists had not signed the Geneva Convention. So we knew our next of kin would have no idea where we were missing an action believe taken prisoner or whatever so we decided to tell in our first letter home that we were being treated kindly and we were being looked after like bucklings blow the ball anyway there we were and um my one of my letters got home but that was it after that we, we any letters we wrote, we told the truth, and of course they didn't get back. I think my family had one letter in three years.
1: That must have been so difficult for your family.
0: Yeah, especially my dad, because he knew what we would do going through, you know, because he was taken prisoner by the Japanese.
1: Oh yeah, he he must have been so worried about you after. What he'd seen, Tommy. Can I ask you? Um, how did you deal with the boredom in the camps?
0: <laughs> Taking the piss out of the Chinese.
1: <laughs> Tell me how you did that, Tommy.
0: Well, we 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 dig a hole in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the middle of the camp. Then about a hundred yards away, we dig another hole. In daylight, you know, and the Chinese would come along and say. What do you do? And we used to put our fingers to our lips and say, hush, hush. Don't tell anybody. And of course, they used to think we were digging our way out, which was stupid. But they never, they never caught them dog. We used to take the piss out of them regularly. Um we'd take dogs for walks. In fact, strangely enough, There were very, very few uh, animals left in Korea. They'd been eaten by the refugees. But we had, somehow, it must have escaped. We had a puppy, but it was a young dog. And we had come into the camp somehow, and we looked after it, being PWs, and being British. We each gave a spoonful of whatever and we kept this dog going. And the Chinese thought we were fattening it up because they ate, they eat dogs and cats, you know. And anyway, we kept this dog and he was our pet. And then suddenly he disappeared. We knew the bloody Chinese had him. A one of the lads came back and said, yes. He'd seen um, the dog's pelt, the coat, you know, nailed up outside the Chinese headquarters. And we tackled the Chinese about it. And they said, well, if you weren't going to eat it, we were. So, anyway, uh, we moaned, but we obviously couldn't do much about it. But we used to, we used to take the piss out of them as much as we could. And we take it to the edge, you know. But that's how Kinney, a man called Kinney, um who used to take it out of a rotten and um he got the George Cross for doing it and he joined um your bro- your your dad would remember him because his brother, Kinney's brother, was in the Middlesex, he'd been killed in the early part of the war, in the first few months. And Kinney joined to avenge his brother. And he certainly did that all right. But he came back and he got the George Cross.
1: Incredible, Tommy. Incredible. Can we go back to the moment that you get captured on your escape attempt?
0: When we escaped, or tried to, we were given the route out because there was a river on one side of the camp and that was the best way out because you could ford the river. And we were given the route out by the escape committee. We only knew one man, I knew. And we started out and we were doing fine. We got near the river And then suddenly a guard appeared who shouldn't have been there. And I'm convinced to this day that we were given away by somebody. We were crawling through the bushes and the the Gloucester David Green, he had fair hair. So he had a wooly hat on over his hair so it wouldn't show up in the moonlight. And um, he was in front of me, and suddenly I heard a rifle being cocked behind me. It was obvious to me what was going on. There were no lights or anything at that stage, but I heard the rifle being cocked, and I tapped Dave on the shoulder, and I said, Dave, we've been recaptured. And he couldn't hear me at first, and I thought, any minute, we're going to get bloody shot in the back, you know. Anyway, he, he, he pulled his cap computer off, and I said, we've been recaptured, Dave. When I said that, the lights went on, and the whistles blew, and all hell let loose. The camp lit up, you know, virtually. And, um... Uh, they split us up, they put handcuffs on me and put me in solitary straight away because they wanted to know who helped us escape. And I was no way going to give my mate away, then in the escape committee. So I kept dumb. I gave them false names at first. You know, like Gary Cooper, uh, Mickey Mouse, and all those products. And then they started to lean on me, fairly heavily, And they used to call me, my name is Clough, C-L-O-U-G-H, but they couldn't pronounce it. They used to call me Cluggerfer. And every time they said Cluggerfer, I used to bloody laugh. And I'd get a few slaps. But they thought I was laughing at them. Well, I was in a way. Anyway, I gave them these names. They came back to me and they said, You are lying, Cosopher. Slap, slap. And um, had dragged me out at all times of day and night. I was in a, a vacated toilet, it was quite good by Korean standards. Well, uh, the only toilets they had in those days was a hole in the ground because, like I said earlier, they used to use human waste on on those crops, you know. But anyway, they put me in this disused toilet, which was a concrete block with a hole in it, with a plank over it. And the plank was my bed. And I had handcuffs on. And I had on those on for months. And they kept tightening them up. And they kept telling me that they would take me into China. They would bury me so deep that I wouldn't even stink. And they began to lean heavily on me. So I thought, I've got to get out of this somehow. And I told you about some of the people who went along with the Chinese. They were called progressives. We who didn't go along with it were called reactionaries. And we hated the progressives. We couldn't do anything with them, we just ignored them. Which is just as well really because the Chinese would have come down on us. Anyway, I thought right, I'll put the cat amongst the pigeons. And I gave them these names of these people who they thought was going along with them. Anyway, a fortnight went by and I thought it's worked. Because obviously they were investigating um these people. They came back to me again and they said, Claudia, you're lying. They took me out of my solitary, took my handcuffs off, which was painful, and then put me in what we used to call the kennel club. Now the kennel club was in a, 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 a barn without walls. There was a roof over it, but it was, um, no walls, but there were cages, literally wooden cages. Um, and they were about four foot high about two foot wide, and about just over four foot long. I mean, I'm only small, but I could hardly squeeze into it, you know. But then, they put me in there in the middle of the night, but I knew what it was. We'd heard about them from other prisoners, you know. And I was in there for quite a while, and again, they took me out now and again um and questioned me. But they got fed up in it in the end and they said, Right, Claudopel, you are sentenced for hard labour. So I did a couple of months hard labour and just outside the about three, four, five miles outside the main camp, which wasn't too bad, because they were giving me hard labour so they had to feed me. So the food was better, but when I came out, um, a couple of months later, they took me, well a sentry took me back to the main camp, and we got back to the main camp, and he lost his way, and he took me to the American compound. So he said, right, Krogopov, stay. I felt like a dog. In fact, that's what we used to call the cages, the kennel club. Anyway, he went off to find a way, and a couple of Americans came over and we started whispering. Me, and I told them what I'd been and everything. The guard came back and said, "Right, Claggepel," and I followed him, and I followed him through two lines as Americans, and they applauded me all the way back to my own compound, which did me a world of good. It boosted my morale, no end. But I was back in the main camp again with the lads. And eventually, in 53, obviously, the peace talks came to an end. But it was strange. When they announced the peace talks, was over, and the whole war was over. We were, we were getting peace talks, uh, from the Chinese, but it was one-sided, and it was a load of bollocks, you know. Uh, they used to blame the Americans for everything, even the weather. Anyway, one morning, they got us out, we were surrounded by guards with six bayonets. And we thought, what the bloody hell is going on here? We thought we were going to be executed or something. We weren't sure what was happening. Anyway, the commandant came along, spoke to us for about half an hour in bloody Chinese, which we couldn't understand. But my mate said to me, they keep mentioning the peace talks. So we thought all this fell through. Anyway, an interpreter came along, and translated, and he said, and he said something I'd heard before. For you, the war is over. I'd heard it many times through shit-house rumours, you know. And uh, we just stood still. We didn't that. We didn't move. The Chinese couldn't understand us, so they shepherded us back into our billets, and we heard a big cheer go up from the American compound. And the Americans said to us, and the Chinese said, why didn't you cheer like the Americans? And we said, because we didn't bloody believe you. Anyway, obviously, it was over. And a a couple of, well, about weeks later, they came in, uh, and we were coming out in batches, and about 50 of us one morning, we were phoned up, and they said, Right, we're taking you to um, a railhead, where you will catch a train and go south. But we were, first of all, in trucks. So when we set off from the camp, we did something. We never did when we entered the camp. We sang. And we sang a song because we had quite a few um, uh, Irishmen with us. And we sang a song which wasn't really relevant called It's a Long Way to Tipperary. I mean, we weren't going to Tipperary. We knew we were going to South Korea and then to Japan. But we didn't give a shit. We signed it anyway. And, um, that came through many years later in, um, well, 2019, I think it was. And I'm in blind veterans, you see, because I, my site went in 2012. And my welfare officer said to me, she'd heard this story, and she said to me, would you like to go to Tipperary? And I said, I'd love to go to Tipperary, but it's in the Republic. I wouldn't be welcome there with my medals on, would I? And she said, yes, you would. And believe it or not, we were. I went with Vicky from the museum, and we we were only there three days. But we had a whale at time. We were really welcome. And I didn't realise that the British Legion had um a branch in in the Republic of Ireland. Because what it was, they had men killed in World War One before I the Republic became the Republic, before it became independent. So they remembered them throughout the years, and I was able to remember this with them, uh, me and Vicky, and Laid Reeves in the Republic, and that was great.
1: Tommy, again, thanks for uh, sharing that that with me. Um, how do you leave Korea? How are you sent home?
0: Uh, we got down to Panmenjong with the Chinese, And they handed it over to the Americans, uh, which we were glad of. And the Americans looked after us, and we saw some Brits at that point. But we were in the Freedom Camp, what we call Freedom Camp. We had showers. we were deloused, first of all, by the um, American nursing people. And we were hoping for the females, but we didn't get them. <laughs> but we were deloused, showered, given new kit, handed over to the, the Brits, the WVS they were, and I think they're now the WRVS. They got a royal because of it. And we were handed over to them in Korea. We spent one night in Korea, but we were flown to Japan from Kimpo Airfield, which was a military airfield near Seoul. When we got to Japan, they said, sorry, but the troop ship you should have caught has gone. Um, but don't worry, we will fly you down to Singapore where you will catch it but we're keeping you here for four days before you go. Well, you can imagine, four days in Japan, with three years back pay, and uh, we got to Kiyo, which is the Commonwealth base, and they said, well, sorry, fellas, but there is a curfew. And the Americans had occupied Japan, of course, after World War II. And they were still there. And they were in control. But they allowed us to have a base in Curie, uh, which was a Commonwealth base. Anyway, the first night there, we were all stood up. We went into town. And we had a way of the town. We got on the trucks to go back. They took us back to the camp, then they said, Right, all you lot, pointing to us in all our new kit, get back on the trucks. They took us back, this is the MPs, red caps. They took us back into Kiwi and said, Right, away you go. And I've never said a bad word about a red cap since. We had four days of... Oh, we went wild, really. But we took it easy on the way home.
1: Tommy, that must have been an incredible feeling of uh, relief and elation. What was it like that that first time you stepped back onto British soil?
0: Well, we got back to um, Southampton in the middle of the night. And we had to stay out, out in Solent until the morning because arrangements had been made for people to meet us Our next of kin, you know. So, we stayed on, on board that night, very frustrated, seeing all the lights at home, you know. But the next morning, we docked and we were met by our next of kin, they'd been given rail warrants and everything to come down, because my folks were in Blackpool. And um, it was, it, we were in the dream, we were in cloud cuckoo land, you know. It was so hot, hard to believe after three years in Korea. I mean, as you know, Korea was devastated, absolutely flattened. We came back from Seoul, and there was only one building standing. And that was built by the Japanese, because Korea and South China had been occupied by Japan for the last 30 years, before World War Two. you know. So we got back, and our parents were there. My mum and dad were there, because I wasn't married then. And uh, my girlfriend, who became my wife, she wasn't sure where I was because when I was going to Japan, I could only allocate two next of kin. So obviously I allocated my parents. But I told my sister um, in Blackpool, I said, look, if anything happens to me, which it won't, because we thought the we war was going to be over the time we got there, I said, but if anything does happen, write to this girl in South Wales, who so I met when I was, when she was 15 and I was 18. And anyway, she started writing straight away. So, They were £10 by the time I got home. So she came up to Blackpool, and we got together again, and a year later we got married. And I've now got three daughters, I can't remember how many grandsons, and I've got great-grandsons. So I've got quite a family, which, if it wasn't for my good luck, wouldn't be here now. <laughs> so I'm really lucky. I was very lucky. I got through the battle. I got through imprisonment. And I ended up doing 30-odd years in the army. So I was very, very lucky. And as you know, I've just passed my 90th birthday.
1: And many happy returns to you, Tommy. Um... I'm I'm lost for words really because you you've shared with us such incredible detail of your hardships and and struggles that you you had to survive in Korea. Um, I'm immensely humbled and and honoured that you've you've shared this story with me and and so appreciative of 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 your time, Tommy. But I did have one more question, and it and it was how easy was it for you to adjust to normal life on your return home?
0: Very, very difficult. I used to lay in bed until three o'clock in the afternoon. My my parents were working and I'd just get up. And um, my dad made me get out. He used to take me to see Blackpool playing football and stuff, and made me mix with people again. But I was, um, I was very reluctant to go out, really. I got that used to not seeing anybody else, but <laughs> POWs and Chinese, you know. But I got adjusted, obviously. You do, after a while, um, you realize that life goes on. And you, you get back to normal pretty quickly. But like I say, I never spoke much about the war for a long time afterwards. And um, it was only, it's only in my recent years I I didn't go back to Korea until 2010. That was my first revisit. A lot of the lads went back in the 60s and 70s but I never went back because I was still in the army anyway and um, I was enjoying myself and I've got absolutely no regrets at all absolutely none.
1: Do click on the link to the episode notes for videos and further details about this episode. Now you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.